Okay, hello everybody. Today is Friday. Time for the Anything Goes segment. This is the day when any subject is fair game. But first, before we begin, I would just like to remind you guys that you can download the show for free. That is the audio version, Pure Podcast at Launchpad 1, and you can always visit Amazon.com to get a copy of the book Killer on a White Horse by me, Ned Dahan, and the Teespring page. Have a look at some of the merchandise, and of course, just simply like and subscribe. First, I would like to give a shout-out to Mr. JSV650, who says, Good morning, Ned. Would you consider doing a series or an episode on the Gardner Art Heist sometime? I think you would find it interesting. The episode you did on my previous request, The Ghosts of Highway 20, was really good. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And yes, The Ghosts of Highway 20 episode is already out. That was on the serial killer John Arthur Aykroyd and some of the crimes that he committed, even though he was only convicted of one murder, the murder of Kay Turner. But that is available here on Black Box Online Radio. As I said, it's good to subscribe so you can follow all of these subjects that um, get covered on the Anything Goes segment. Not only serial killers, but other aspects of the true crime world, which we will be discussing today. So, I was originally planning on devoting the entire episode to just one subject, but I had a lot of ideas just going back and forth, and there were some things that I wanted to talk about all at once. So I'm going to begin by talking about the Isabella Stewart Gardner art heist that Mr. JSV650 has requested, and then I'll go on to some other material. But um, as you see, this is one that was requested by one of the listeners, so if there's anything that you would like covered on the channel, you can put your idea down in the comment section below. Maybe it will be featured, whether it's about true crime or any other subject. But uh, there's also a comment from Walter here who says, Hey dude, I follow a mafia cat named Bobby Louisi. He knows people who may have known something about the Gardner heist. Check out his channel. The mafia, organized crime, these elements are going to be very influential on the Gardner art heist. I first learned about the art heist at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum when I was a kid, and one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about the subject after uh, Mr. JSV requested it was, I did a recent episode when I was mentioning a couple things about Dutch Schultz and how he possibly buried some of his um, findings from organized crime. By findings, I mean his wealth. Yeah, he, he buried a large amount of his wealth in the Catskill Mountains, and treasure hunters are looking for these findings, as I just called them. No, but it's it's a variant of buried treasure, except it came from a mobster rather than a pirate, but it is even possibly just a legend. But I learned about both of these stories, the Gardner Art Heist and Dutch Schultz and his Catskill Treasure, from this program that was on Fox 5 when I was growing up. It was like this limited series that talked about unsolved mysteries, but it had some other title, and many of them offered rewards. Like, it was trying to do a new spin on the Unsolved Mysteries thing under a different name. I don't even remember the name of it. It's been like 25 years. But it was about mysteries that had some type of financial connection that you could gain from it, such as encountering Dutch Schultz's treasure, or obtaining the reward for solving the mystery of the Isabella Stewart Gardner art heist. The Gardner art heist was the biggest 
art theft in history. And even here on their website for the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, which is called GardnerMuseum.org, they also point out that not only was it the biggest art heist ever, because of the value of the art that was stolen to the tune of $300 million at the time, it was the biggest property theft period in the history of the world. We're talking in the history of the entire planet Earth. And this occurred in Massachusetts. I've actually been to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum once, and it was kind of a rough experience because none of the pieces of artwork had any labels on them. Instead, they gave you this little booklet and you had to follow along, except it wasn't a real booklet. It was just some like uh, what laminated pages that were held together with a hook. So it was kind of um kind of a confusing presentation for such valuable art. But I'm over on their website now and I will have a quick introduction. In the early hours of March 18th, a vehicle pulled up near the side entrance of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Two men in police uniforms pushed the museum buzzer and stated that they were responding to a disturbance and requested to be let in. The guard on duty broke protocol and allowed them through the employee entrance. At the fake officer's request, he stepped away from the watch desk. He and the second security guard were handcuffed and tied up in the basement of the museum. The thieves departed with 13 of the gardener's works. 81 minutes later, and it's just that. It's just that simple. These two guys that were um, dressed as police officers made off with these 13 pieces of art. And as I said, was valued at $300 million. And when I was watching this on the television as a kid, they talked about how if you can solve this mystery, provide the information that is going to lead to the return of these pieces of art and get the... Um, the individuals involved convicted, there was a $5 million reward. And I remember thinking, $5 million for $300 million worth of art? Well, that's just lame. I mean, pff, better off just keeping it. That reminded me of Homer Simpson saying, Hey, if you bring me the donuts, I'll let you have one. I was like, pfft. But um, anyway, okay, I get it. I get it. They're just trying to encourage people to um, do something in the name of goodness, not only for monetary value. But um, I also remember that they, there was a particular Rembrandt painting that had been stolen, and it was the first time that I had ever seen it. And it was um, just something that always stayed with me. I was like, wow, that just looks simply amazing. And it was called Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee. And it um, stood out in my memory because it was just such a vivid yet um, yet brilliant painting. And I really didn't know anything about Rembrandt at the time. I'm still not even an art expert, but that was one painting that really captured my attention. It also amazed me that the people were tied up and handcuffed, and they only had these two guards I've read in one source years ago that they were actually college students who were working their part-time job, and I think you can get the idea that it seems like absolutely nothing bad ever happened at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Absolutely no type of um, problem like this had ever happened in the past. So they let their guard down. They thought that there was going to be some type of brief conversation with law enforcement. I also remember reading years ago, and I wish I could cite the source, but it's been maybe 
10 years ago, I used to read up on this, and it said that the police officers, upon closer inspection, were wearing all kinds of fake disguises, like prosthetic pieces around their face, not just like a fake mustache, but even heavily accented makeup to the point where it may have actually been prosthetic things like there's maybe a piece of plastic on the cheeks or something that's really covered in intense makeup but I'm just going off of memory on that and when I was a kid the artwork that had been stolen was valued at 300 million dollars now according to insider.com it is valued at 500 million dollars as I said the biggest property theft period another thing that I thought was rather perplexing as I was learning about it was all right, I get that the art has value in a conventional and legal business transaction, but how exactly would art have value on the black market? I mean, how would people be able to steal this and claim the full $300 million or $500 million value? Well, it turns out, much as Walter said, that there is a connection to organized crime with all of this, and the Boston Mafia may have played a very large role in it. One theory is that some of the artwork was given as gifts among members of the organized crime circles, or simply that um, it was traded throughout the crime markets, but the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum has posted a new reward, more than the $5 million that I talked about, and I'll just read their post here. The museum is offering a $10 million reward for information leading to the recovery of the stolen works. The 1990 theft of 13 works from the art rooms of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum collection remains unsolved. Although the museum's commitment to resolving the crime has never diminished since its occurrence 31 years ago, the museum and the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office are still seeking viable leads that could result in the safe return of art. The museum is offering a $10 million report for information leading directly to the safe return of these stolen works. A share of the reward it will be offered in exchange for information leading to the restitution of any portion of the works. A separate reward of $100,000 is being offered for the return of a Napoleonic eagle. Okay, so um, even if you get on Wikipedia and you read about this, you'll see that the FBI had strong leads into the organized crime circles, and not only strong leads, there's even a quotation that says they believe that they know who did it. It's just, um, well, I think it's one of the complicated aspects of taking down organized crime. But I said in this segment that I wanted to talk about several different subjects that were connected to both the art world and the crime world. Frequently on this channel, I put up two paintings from the artist Salvador Dali. And it's because I learned about this stuff from you guys in the comment section. First, people were asking me, what do you think about the connections to the Zodiac Killer mystery and Dali Day? Dali Day is the idea that if you divide our calendar into months of 28 days. You know how we have 30 or 31 days in a month with the exception of February? If you divide our calendar into months of 28 days, there will be some days that are left over, and these are Dali days, named for Salvador Dali and surrealist art. So there is, um, these are the days that are when the CIA allegedly commits crimes and tries to blame it on the occult. And the two paintings that I put up from Salvador Dali are The Persistence of Memory and The Crucifixion. 
I was just listening to a lecture about science or something like that once. I think it was in 2012. And the presenter was talking about the painting The Crucifixion by Salvador Dali and saying that it featured an unfolded tesseract. And that's a the tesseract is a four-dimensional shape. And the presenter was like, the only time you'll ever see an unfolded tesseract is in a science textbook or in the painting The Crucifixion by Salvador Dali. I do think Dali was a brilliant individual, even if the CIA did hijack his um, surrealist thinking. The other one was The Persistence of Memory, which is perhaps Salvador Dali's most famous painting, although that is arguable. And um, I had been told back in junior high that the inspiration for The Persistence of Memory from Salvador Dali was that he was at home one night alone, and he was eating some soft cheeses and he had an idea for a painting, and that is the painting that went on to be known as The Persistence of Memory. And I told that story to a family member, and they were like, I don't believe you. So they got online and started Googling it, and they were like, it's not the whole painting. The cheese was only the inspiration for the shapes of the clocks that you see in the painting. But... I mean, it's a very famous painting because it has these clocks that are almost just melting in the desert. And uh, I even had a chessboard like this on like a computer game like Chess Master. Do you remember that back in the 90s? And there was one called, um, oh, what was it? Um, I think it was just called Surreal or something like that. The Surreal Chessboard, which had um, Salvador Dali's uh, soft clocks. But um, the story that um, was told to me about why he gave it the title The Persistence of Memory was... He wanted people to look at the concept of time melting, but then remember it within their own mind. And if he had just called it soft clocks, they never would have thought about anything to do that. They would be like, oh, yeah, okay, I mean, there's a clock, and it's kind of in this floppy shape. If you call it the persistence of memory, it's all about this surrealist art thing where it's blending through different um, circles different circles like and it's actually like crossing different spheres of existence metaphysically speaking even if you want to get into some of that another example of surrealist art that has crossed over into the actions of people i mean is dolly day actually going on is the cia actually committing murders and blaming it on the cult i'll let you guys talk about that in the comment section but another example of surrealist art that has infiltrated the um true crime circles is the Black Dahlia murder, the murder of Elizabeth Short back in the 1940s, and you know I love to talk about the prime suspect in that one, George Hill Hodel. Before you can get to Elizabeth Short, you have to go back to the 1930s, and when TNT was promoting the miniseries I Am the Night with um, India Isley and Chris Pine, they were introducing what I guess we can call Holly Weird now. And, um, I mean, I have to credit the Stones Unturned for giving me that name, but, or giving that name to Hollywood, Holly Weird. It's like, in the 1930s, there were all kinds of surrealist art parties going on in Hollywood, and it was all about not only dealing with, like, costumes and, um, drugs, but also just weird sex acts that are going on behind closed doors. This is one of the most consistent aspects of humanity. What are people going to do if they can do anything? They're going to do drugs and they're going to have sex. Well, what if they can do anything and not get caught? 
They're going to do drugs and have sex behind closed doors, and they're going to be really weird about it. For some reason, that's what humanity likes to do. I can't quite put my finger on it. That's sarcasm, by the way. No, um, so all of these things really continue to um, expand and that these Hollywood individuals are having very ridiculous orgies that are just um, hidden from the general public. Why? Because they're not being examined. And then this leads to the spread of STIs, STDs, whatever you'd like to call them. And who was the doctor who was in charge of the um, venereal disease inspections units and health for Los Angeles at the time, George Hill Hodel, once we get into the 1940s. And there's this theory out there that this doctor, George Hodel, didn't simply want to be the venereal disease expert for the stars. Instead, he wanted to do something that would put himself into the surrealist art world, except for the fact that he wasn't an artist. And um, Steve Hodel, who is... um the son of George Hodel, said um, very clearly that he did not watch the miniseries I Am the Night, which I was just citing a bunch of source material from. As he said, it was mostly fiction, but you can get the idea. Like You can see how they're trying to talk about a widely held belief and put it into action. Um, when he said it's mostly fiction, it, okay, they, they may have added in some fictitious elements of George Hodel's life, but it shouldn't be downplayed that... Um, I can definitely accept the surrealist art movements going on in Hollywood. I mean, I just talked to you about Dali Day and how there, there was this popularity of it at the time. So um, that has definitely affected the way people think. But then George Hodel wants to do something that can put him into somewhat of a different category. And he was heavily influenced by a photographer named Man Ray, especially a particular photograph that he did called the Minotaur, which has um, a woman putting her arms up in the air. And that's meant to represent the horns of the Minotaur. And then the woman's breasts are actually meant to be the Minotaur's eyes. And um, it's almost like the um, head of a... Uh, monstrous bull-like figure, but it's um, it's just a woman's body, and that the murder of Elizabeth Short was actually committed because it was meant to be an act of surrealist art, crossing boundaries, doing something horrific, but also um, it had a particular sense of meaning to the killer. Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, was of course not only slashed across the face that you may have seen in the particular photos, but she was bisected in half, and if you ever watch any of the presentations from Steve Hodel, he will frequently talk about how his, um, well, I, should, I shouldn't say his father, because his father was never convicted of it, the Black Dahlia Avenger um, surgically bisected Elizabeth Short by cutting through the second and third lumbar vertebrae, not to damage any organs. I mean, if, if, if he had just wanted to cut her in half, there would have been such easier ways to do that. It was done very methodically. Someone who seemed to have surgical knowledge and my window into the world of the Black Dahlia Avenger is almost exclusively through the Hodel family. I Am the Night talked a lot about Fauna Hodel. She's the center, central character played by India Isley. And I have a three-part series on Fauna Hodel. Not even only on that material, but I also read her book, A One Day She'll Darken, talking just about all the weird things that she experienced in her life and um, 
I would invite anybody to listen to that, but it's not only based on um, fictitious sources. There is an element of truth that is out there in um, these these stories that you hear about George Hill Hodel, but um, I think that this is just um, a clear example of how Hollywood has a darker side that we don't get to hear about all the time. And recently on the channel, I was talking about the Cotton Club murder, which goes back to the 1983 murder of Rory Radin, who was a producer for our movie, The Cotton Club. And it was a front for cocaine, drug smuggling, money laundering. It was a front for for drug money, cocaine deals to the tunes of millions of dollars. And there was another person named Lainey Greenberger, whom I believe was listed as a producer, even though it seemed like she was more on the drug side from what I've read. This other person, Lainey Greenberger, felt that she was cheated out of her cut of the money. So then she wanted to get revenge on this guy, Roy Raiden, for cheating her. So she enlisted the um, services of contract killers and Bill Menser and Alex Marty murdered Roy Raiden. They shot him 13 times. They put an explosive in his mouth. And Bill Menser was ultimately convicted of that, but not only for the murder of Roy Raiden. He was also convicted for the 1984 murder of June Mincher Mack, along with... um. Arthur Michael Pascal, who would actually be testifying against Bill Menser, and then years later in 1991, Arthur Michael Pascal was learned to have been the person who orchestrated that murder. So you have black markets, you have criminal underworld actions, you have Hollywood serving as a front for the drug trade. Is that not outrageous enough for the media to latch on? No, they're not going to talk about it. And I think there's a big reason why you don't hear too many stories about that on the evening news. It's not really too far. Like, it's a stone's throw away from television to Hollywood. And why would television want to take down another aspect of the media and just be like, well, I'm sure they would expose all the secrets of the television world and such, or... The media elites are all on the same side. I think you can see where I'm going with that. And we are now into the month of September. And on the first day of every month, there is a podcast called Crime After Crime that puts out a new episode. I talk about this one from time to time. Time to time, Crime After Crime. I didn't even think about that. That's kind of cool. But it's hosted by Daniel Hallen and John Lorden, who are YouTubers, who have been a big influence on me and not only wanting to make YouTube videos, but just the way that I think about the true crime world. And w when I did the episode where I listed off my top five true crime podcasts, I said Crime After Crime was number one because I had never heard a podcast like it before. And it's all about telling um, stories. It's about who can tell the best true crime story. And um, you get to vote on Twitter and on their website. And every... At the beginning of every episode, they announced the winner who had told the best story and such. And for September of 2021, they told two stories about show business, if we can count show, the show business world as also a form of art, which I do think it is. I mean, cinema as well as the music business. Then we, I mean, like the host, Daniel Hallen, told one of the most amazing 
con man stories that I have ever heard. If you do want to um, listen to it, as I said, it's uh, Crime After Crime, Showbiz Crimes for the month of September 2021. And it's the story of this guy from Indonesia who just learned how to mimic voices like at an expert level, and he would fool all kinds of people, and they just believe that he is a clinical sociopath, but he leads people on, telling them that they're going to be actors or actresses in a movie, and then he brings them to Indonesia, and it's all a scam. He gets them to put over some of their money into some type of um, addition to the venture, some type of investment, and it's all scams, but he just plays the part so convincingly, and the thing is, he's working with actors and actresses, yet he is obviously a more convincing actor than they are. But I had never heard of um anything like this. I mean, he even duped Enrique Iglesias. He was even trying to impersonate Kate Blanchett. And it really is quite shocking, though, like the lengths that people will go to. And also, it's just you'd have to wonder, if someone is so good at putting on performances, the host John Lorden even said, why is this guy doing criminal behaviors? Why didn't he just host a radio show? He could have been his own callers. I mean, like, if he's that good at doing voices, he could have had it set up. And then I began to think, you know, that's true. I mean, he could have really put his efforts into something entertaining. And as they said, um, I mean, I kind of gave away some of this as a spoiler. They believe he is a clinical sociopath. By they, I mean like medical so-and-sos. And that it's just that desire to manipulate people and gain control of the situation in a negative way. And this also leads to um, doing things that fuel one's own excitement, such as creating problems for themselves. Like if you watch that documentary series, murder in the Mormon church. It, it tells the story of a guy named Mark Hoffman. I believe his name is spelled H-O-F-M-A-N, Hoffman with one F. And he was an excellent document forger. And this isn't really artistic, but I mean forgery. And he was so good at it that he could fool the experts with the government. He could deceive them into thinking that coins even were authentic when they were forgeries, and he could fool the best document experts in the world, just something that he had forged himself. But then he would create scenarios where he would almost get caught, or he would put himself into financial ruin, because so then he needs to create a new document to obtain money, something that he could sell, and then get out of financial trouble. He was creating the problems for himself to fuel his own excitement. And then you just have to wonder... Why? Power tripping. It's neurochemistry. And always wanting to experience the really intense highs and lows. And I know I gave away some spoilers about that episode of Crime After Crime, but the way they present it, it's almost like it's meant to be surprises, but I hope you will listen to it because they just told two amazing stories and the second one was the story of the kidnapping of Frank Sinatra Jr., and I had never heard about that before. I was just listening to him on YouTube yesterday, and um, he was singing one of his father's songs, and some people in the comments section are like, oh my gosh, he sounds just like his father. Why didn't his career take off more? Well, Frank Sinatra Jr. would have thought that was a good question, too. I mean, he was fully aware that his career didn't take off the way his father's did, but he was kidnapped at the age of 19, and he was held for ransom, and 
they didn't have cell phones at the time, so, well, I, I won't even give away all of the spoilers of that, because I want you to listen to this crime after crime episode, but the long story short was, yes, there was a kidnapping, and Frank Sinatra Jr. was returned safely, but one of the participants who was involved with it was a high school classmate of Nancy Sinatra, Frank's daughter. So, this is something we always have to bear in mind in the true crime world. Some people are methodical and calculating. Some people use these um, opportunities, or they have someone who stays in their memory, and then they do something destructive years later. I mean, we, th we see these theories all the time in the Zodiac killer work, mystery about how somebody may have been a classmate, but then that person graduates high school, yet maybe four years later or something, then they become a suspect in the person's murder. It happens all the time. Someone has a first-hand connection, even if they go ages without seeing the person. I mean, if you're a classmate of Nancy Sinatra, I think you'll remember who her father was. I mean, just guessing. But even with people who weren't famous... That type of behavior still exists. And um, I do have uh, one thing to share about Nancy Sinatra that is um, something that is uh, rather light from the 1960s, though. I was just, uh, as I said, I was listening to that um, video. It's actually a duet that Nancy Sinatra sang with Frank Sinatra Jr. on the Smother Brothers show. Smothers Brothers, excuse me, I left out one S. And one guy wrote into the comments section saying that he was a Vietnam veteran. And when he was in Vietnam, he wrote to Nancy Sinatra and asked if he could have a photo of her. And um, she sent him a photo of her in a white bikini. And he was just like, it kept me through the war. It kept me alive during Vietnam. And I was like, okay, there's a lot of evil that happened in the 1960s. The Zodiac Killer, the Manson family, Ted Kennedy and Chappaquiddick. And um, I'll, I'll tell you the secrets of that one in a different episode, because there's a dark side to that that hasn't been, um, hasn't been broadcast too frequently. I mean, some people know about it. Yeah, there's a lot of nasty stuff that's going on in the 1960s, but music was one thing that um, people really looked to as a saving grace and so on. Now, some people believe that the um, art world and the music world are being hijacked by the global elites because they recognize how influential it can be. And look at them. Look at how music and culture changed in the 1960s. Look how television and film changed in the 1960s. Look at all of these hippies and slippies who were going around in the 1960s. Some people think that oligarchs are very real. I happen to be one of them. But uh, some people think that oligarchs are real, and they actually just kind of sit around in boardrooms calculating how can we preserve our power. So what they did was, they're like, well, let's just hijack these existing movements and persuade them to our advantage. Okay, people like reading books. Well, then we're going to we're gonna give money to somebody who's writing books that are favorable to us. Oh, people like movies? Well, we're going to put money into movies that are favorable to our agenda. Oh, people like music? Well, we're going to even have people write songs about ideas that are beneficial to our agenda. And you can even see this in some of the things happening in the new millennium. This isn't so much of the global elites, but like when you hear that like hip-hop artists are paid money to promote like liquor or 
jewelry companies or any type of things, like maybe like a brand of shoes or something like that, they're given money and then they need to write a song that is going to be including this in their lyrics. It's like a form of um, subliminal product placement advertising, if I'm using the term correctly. And that isn't the most evil thing in the world. It's just not a very genuine form of artistic creation. Okay, now the oligarchs trying to support certain types of artists and thinkers because it's beneficial to controlling humanity. That is the most evil thing in the world. And they're trying to destroy humanity for power and for profit. I mean, that's absolutely sickening. But in um, to recap, you even see with the Isabella Stewart Gardner art heist, that there are, there is a connection to organized crime, and that's the biggest theory that is present there. You also see that the murder of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia murder, is one that is also connected to a group of, well, oligarchs all the same, because Hollywood is its own oligarchy. It is very similar. It is an elite circle. I mean, sometimes we'll even hear this at the Golden Globes when they refer to themselves as the cultural elites or something like that. And think about what we just said about the Cotton Club murder. It is connected to the drug trade and organized cr crime and the criminal networks and the black markets. All of these elite circles work together. And... It's um, It can lead to some very dark and twisted things, those two examples that I just listed off there. When you have something like the kidnapping of Frank Sinatra Jr., that seems like it was more or less organized by thugs, and um, that doesn't seem to be quite connected to um, in a, a criminal underworld by the criminals, but then you have the Sinatra family, who is the elite establishment. They're just different forms of the elite's. Life is interlocking, so it seems. Well, thank you so much for listening to this um, episode on several different crimes from the art world. As I said, the uh, the Gardner heist was one that was recommended by Mr. JSV650. If there are any requests that you would like, you can put your ideas in the comment section. You can also write me at blackboxonlineradio at aol.com. Anybody can write the show there, share anything that you want. And I'm on Instagram at blackboxned88, and I will see you over there for the bonus podcast. Until next time.